Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Got a great stream with a great guest for you here. I wanted to touch a little bit on a topic that I don't think gets enough attention. There's a whole history to the way that the United States has approached the gold standard. I think some sh shocking things that people don't learn about history class in learn about in history class kind of surrounding this issue. And so I wanted to bring somebody on who is well versed in the topic. And so today I have Stephen Carson from Radical Liberation here. Thank you for coming on, man. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll show my channel and all that heavier at the end of the stream, but I'll just say this. I like to talk about forgotten things. That's a theme that runs through um, <clears throat> the everything I do. And uh, the, a quote that inspires me is from Milan Kundera, of all people. He, he wrote, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And um, Solzhenitsyn said similar things. So I, I feel like uh, simply remembering certain inconvenient bits <laughs> from the past, is, uh, there's power in that, in my view. I think you're right. And I think that's uh, what a lot of people uh, do. And you guys definitely delve deep into that on your channel. So I think that's very useful. And that's a big part about what's happening here. Because I think a lot of people have, you know, the background of like, okay, at some point, the gold standard existed, but it kind of fell away. And they don't really know anything about the history behind it. And I think there's some things that will shock the average person kind of when they're more familiar with everything that went on. But before we yes. get in deeper <laughs> into that kind of surprising history that was involved, what is the gold standard? Why is it important? Why would it be desirable in the first place for people to kind of have a gold standard for their mon uh, for money? <clears throat> Okay, well, uh, let me skip forward. I, I was going to just give a definition of money because you're going to get really lost if you don't even know what money is. So let me just explain money really quick, and then and then it becomes sort of obvious about gold. Um, the definition of money, economically, to be precise, is the most widely accepted medium medium of exchange. That just means the thing that you know if you get some of that, people will probably accept it for whatever you want from them, right? It is not always paper dollars. It is not always gold. In World War II prison camps, it tended to be cigarettes. Uh, fascinatingly, recently in U.S. prisons, it's been packs of ramen noodles. I'm not kidding. Look it up. There's a story on NPR, for example. Um, uh, so, you know, it depends on the situation. All kinds of things have served as money. I think they, they paid Roman soldiers in salt at one point, etc. right? It, it can vary based on circumstances. Having said that, Historically, money has usually been a precious metal like copper, silver, gold. Hopefully the advantages are obvious. Unlike a pack of ramen or some salt, if you get your gold wet, it isn't the value of it isn't destroyed, right? Um, furthermore, unlike, say, a gem, uh, if you split the gold coin, if you, if you split the gold into smaller pieces, each piece still retains the, you know, half of a gold coin is worth half the value of the gold coin, whereas half of a, a, a beautiful diamond that you split in half is worth way less than half mm -hmm. of the original value of the diamond, right? So, so and, and I could go on and on, but, but a good money is, you know, doesn't spoil, is easy to divide, um, uh, and, um, and has a value of its own. That's the thing where we have gone off the reservation in, in the 20th century. Uh, traditionally, money was commodities, a commodity of some kind like all the things I mentioned, right? It might sound silly to you that cigarettes or ramen noodles would be used as money, but you have to admit cigarettes, ramen noodles, salt, they have a use besides money, right? 
So the value of them has a certain floor. You're never going to, you're, you, if your money is gold or cigarettes or salt or whatever, it's not going to become completely valueless because it still has its use as a commodity. Well, gold actually is useful. Um, people tend to associate it with jewelry, which is a use, but it also has industrial uses and so forth. So there is just a, a base value of gold that's never going away, even if, as is our case now, gold is not being used as a money. So if gold is so obviously useful, right? And and we can tell through, like you said, over time, it's very common for it in many different cultures to be used as this kind of basis for exchange. If it is so obviously useful, then why would any government seek to go off of a gold standard? If it's so self-evidently useful as and good at this kind of thing, why would a government want to abandon it? Well, that, that's what we're going to spend the whole show uh, discussing. So I don't want to give you a pass right. right now, Fair but enough. I mean, I, I just say in brief, uh, it, it's not for our good. Let's yes. put it that way. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, we're going to explore. It's not because they care, they care so much about us that they want us to not be, not be using gold as money. That's not the reason. <laughs> sure, sure. All right. So we're going we're gonna to get into uh, kind of the, the first effort, I think, to really go completely off the gold standard. Now, I do want to say that there was a history in the United States. Obviously, there was the adoption of gold, and then there was moving to kind of like bimetallism and, and that kind of thing. So the gold standard is was something that the United States had kind of moved around a little bit here and there. But we're going to talk about kind of the big, uh, the big changes and kind of that hidden history behind it. So why don't you set the frame? I know you said you wanted to talk a little bit of, of kind of a forgotten depression before we get into FDR and some of the, the big things we were talking about. Right. So one of the things you and I have both been learning about is the significance of the crisis, or sometimes in the literature, it's called the exception, mm -hmm. right? The emergency scenario, right? Um, and this figures largely into political theory. Or, well, the political theory we've been learning, maybe, maybe yes. not all political theory. It figures largely into that. So <clears throat> part of what I want to do here is I want to focus on three crises. Um, and the first one I want to cover is just to sort of set the context of how a crisis, an economic crisis can be handled, because I want to anticipate those <clears throat> who are going to say in defense of FDR, who I am going to attack. <laughs> um, uh, in defense of FDR, they'll say, well, they, he had to do it. You know, there was a crisis. There was an exception, an emergency, and he had to do extraordinary things, right? Um, well, history has been kind to us in this regard, because in 1920, we had a crisis that was as big or worse than the one that happened in 1929. After World War One, there was a similar crisis. And um, let me, well, I'll just tell you really quick. I'm going to go through this really fast. 1920, the U.S. stock market fell by nearly 50%. Corporate profits declined by over 90%. Unemployment jumped from 4% to nearly 12%. And gross national, gross national product declined by 17%. So if you compare that stock market uh, drop, for example, to 1929, it was actually worse than Black Friday. Uh, again, no one remembers this, right? Mm -hmm. Why do they not remember it? Because what happened next is not what they would recommend anymore. And it worked. And they don't want to talk about it. Because what happened next is instead of FDR or Herbert Hoover, our country was blessed with a president named Warren G. Harding. 
much maligned. If you, if a president is maligned, you know there's something good about him, and you should take him. <laughs> <laughs> That's your little tip for tip for the day. Okay, so what did Warren Jar Warren, Warren Harding do in the face of this crisis? Instead of a fiscal stimulus, I'm sure you know that that's sort of how things are done these days. Harding cut the government's budget nearly in half between 1920 and 1922. He slashed tax rates for all income groups. He reduced the national debt by one third. And then furthermore, the Federal Reserve, which did exist at the time, it had, it had started uh, an act in 1913, Federal Reserve Act in 1913. It did exist, but it did not do any, it wasn't active. It wasn't an activist Fed at this time. It did not expand the money supply and respond to the, in response to the crisis. I'm sorry, let me be careful there. The Fed had been doing things. That's why we had the problem in 1920. But in response to the crisis in 1920, it didn't do more. Mm -hmm. um, it basically did nothing in response to the crisis, in line with Harding's whole approach. What were the results of all this? <clears throat> well, the great American economist Benjamin Anderson from back then, um, a contemporary economist, described the results. He says, in 1920 to 1921, we took our losses. We readjusted our financial structure. We endured our depression. And in August 1921, no, that's a year and a half later, not nearly 20 years later, in August 1921, we started up again. The rally in business production and unemployment that started in August 1921 was soundly based on a drastic cleaning up of credit weakness, a drastic reduction in the costs of production, and on the free play of private enterprise. It was not based on government policy designed to make business good. So hopefully it's clear why I'm bringing this up. It's a forgotten thing. It's a forgotten bit of history. And it puts the lie to anyone who would say, well, FDR had to do all this, you know, alphabet soup agencies and um, and what we're going to talk about with gold and all that. He had to do it or we would never have gotten out of the Depression. Well, two things against that. Number one, we almost had a lab experiment uh, 10 years before here. Very similar situation, handled it uh, differently and got great results. Number two, he did not end the Depression. The Depression went from 1929 till 1945. Um, I shouldn't have said almost 20, over 15, over 15 years. Um, World War II did not end the Depression either, a different topic. Um, so having said all that, let's throw FDR under the bus. Um, I mean, can you imagine FDR? He becomes president in March 1933. Um, and can you imagine him handling the crisis in the way Harding handled it, you know, shrinking the state and you know, sort of this humble approach, right? And there's just no way. FDR was never going to do that. Well, it's the exact opposite of what we've heard, right? If, if FDR hadn't stepped in and created all these jobs and, you know, uh, created all these programs, then there's no way that the United States possibly could have survived it. So, you know, that's the exact opposite of what we learn about how you get out of the Great Depression, right? Or how you at least right. survive it. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we just we live in lies. We live in an empire of lies. It's just amazing. OK, so what was the crisis in 1933? Obviously, the stock market crashed in 1929. Um, Herbert Hoover, another forgotten thing, had already been doing uh, a new deal. Uh, when we talk about the new deal, we're actually usually referring to the second new deal, which was FDR's new deal. Herbert Hoover had already been taking this kind of activist approach in contradiction to Harvick. Oh, I forgot to mention. Herbert Hoover was the, um, let me get his title right. He was the Secretary of Commerce under Harding. And he recommended that Harding handle 1920 like Hoover and FDR handled 1929. Oh, and Harding ignored him. 
<laughs> much to the benefit of the 20s, which, as everyone knows, went really well, right? Um, uh, and then, um, let's see, so where am I? Okay, so I already explained about money. Ah, okay, so here's what you need to know. In 1933, uh, one of the crises that was going on, besides the general downturn in economic activity and so forth, is that people were asking for their money back that they had deposited in the banks, known colloquially as a bank run, mm -hmm. right? And um, so they were trying to act very fast to keep the banking system from collapsing. Um, so here's what you need to know. The U.S. dollar had been defined as about 120th of an ounce of gold. Um, so that is an ounce of gold would be about $20. Uh, and the gold was the money. That's the key thing to understand. The paper, this is hard for us to go back in time because we think of the paper money as money. The paper money was just a representation for the gold. Mm -hmm. It was just a matter of convenience, sort of like a check, writing someone a check rather than handing them a pile of hundreds or something, right? Um, similarly, you'd use paper dollars rather than carry around a heavy amount of gold or something. Um, so paper notes could be redeemed for gold at any time. Imagine that prior to 1933, an American citizen fully expected that he could take the paper money in his wallet and turn it into gold trivially. I mean, no one even thought about it. It was just, that was just normal. Right. Um, okay. So here's the thing about the banks, regular folks, including us still, think we can just go and pull out the money we've deposited in our checking accounts whenever we want. But that actually is not true because the bank doesn't have all the money. They have this terrible practice of loaning out most of the money you put in your demand deposits, like 90% or more of it, um, which works fine most of the time because most of the time we don't run and empty our checking accounts all at once, right? But sometimes, like in 1933, there's a crisis and everybody wants their cash. Um, so everyone goes and the bank says, uh, sorry, we can't give you all, all that cash because we don't have it. Right? Yeah, this, this is kind of the uh, it's a wonderful life moment where they all show up to yes. the daily. You know, it's oh, the money's in his house and her house. It's it's not here. Right. You know, how much exactly. do you need? And it turns out they don't have yep. almost any of the money. Right. 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 And and supposedly I'm supposed to be comforted by the fact that if you like read the fine print or something or know the ins and outs of banking, you know that when you put your money in your checking account, really you're not storing the money. Really you're loaning it to somebody that you don't know. <laughs> um, but I don't think that's how most people understand their checking account. They think that that money is there. And mm -hmm. if I need it in a pinch, you know, a, a, bill, a bill comes up, a car repair comes up, I can go get the money and use it. Um, but banks have special privileges uh, like suspending specie payment. And that means in, in the pre-1933 world, if people come asking for their gold, the bank could just refuse to give them their gold. And they could do it for days, weeks, years, which is a very strange way to run a business. I mean, imagine any other business, right? Uh, uh, you know, a laundry or something where you said, can I have my dry cleaning back? And they say, Sorry, we loaned your dry cleaning out <laughs> and we can't give it back to you right now. You know? Now, the suspension of, of uh, the CC's payment, would that reduce the credibility of the bank or what, why didn't banks just do this all the time? What was the uh, what was the incentive for them to kind of be able to produce that if necessary? Right. So if one bank would do it, then people would want to be would not want to use that bank anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So typically it would be in a, a general crisis where all the banks would do it at once, right? Gotcha. Um, and so that's how they sort of cover for each other in that way. Okay. Um, okay, so, <clears throat> so what happened in 1933 is that, and this is sort of hard to imagine. It's hard, it's, it's easier for me to imagine Aaron after the last couple years of lockdowns and stuff. Yeah, because, yeah, a little more believable after watching yes. the government shut down the entire economy. Yes, but but right. before just a few years ago, this would have sound like it happened in some kind of totalitarian dictatorship. But, right, but go on. Right. This, this is the shocking part that I think a lot of people yeah. don't know ever happened and can't imagine was possible. So we'll go through the details, but here's the highlight: Americans were forced to hand over all their gold in 1933, assuming it would be returned. By the way, after the economic crisis had passed. Um, but the federal government hid its intentions every step of the way, and they never returned the gold. They never have, still to this day. Okay, so um, that's that's the top line of it. Let's go through the the details. So, why did he outright confiscate the gold to so-called fight the depression? Well, gold was an obstacle to the kind of spending that FDR wanted to do. Mm. Uh, why would that be? Um, if the government had suddenly imposed a paper currency on Americans that was not convertible to a precious metal, that is like the money we have today, um, and that could be inflated at the whim of politicians, Americans would flee into gold if they could. That is, FDR knew his economics this much. He knew that if he introduced a fiat currency alongside gold as money, the fiat currency would lose. People would just be like, I'm not using that crap. It's gonna, it's gonna be worth less tomorrow than it is today, like our money is. Right. Um, so I'll just keep using gold. Um, so he had to take gold off the table as an option if he was going to be able to use inflation to fund all the crazy New Deal programs. So if your plan is to artificially inflate in order to spend way more than you possibly could, otherwise you can't allow a compete, uh, competing currency. You can't allow something to compete and hold value because then your currency would become worthless. You have to drive all competition out of the market in order for you to use those tricks. Yep. And, you, and you'll see it with, you know, third world countries who start putting all kinds of controls or try to on the use of the U.S. dollar because they're trying to make their currency even worse than the U.S. dollar <laughs> and they don't want to compete with the U.S. dollar. So there'll be all these capital controls and all kinds of stuff trying to keep keep people in the reservation, basically, so that so that the government can do its tricks, you know. Um, so let's see. Yeah. So gold needed to be seized and it needed to be demonetized. That means just like what it sounds. How could gold not be money? And that this is, by the way, something a lot of people get confused. Even people who are sort of like pro gold and all that. They're like, gold is money because like it would it used to be money. And historically, it's been money. And maybe they believe it would be a great money if it was money again. But that's not what it means to demonetize. Demonetize means gold was no longer an a widely accepted medium of exchange after FDR did this, right? Um, it, it was, well, it wasn't available to be used as a medium of exchange for one thing. And so you had to use the US Federal Reserve note, right? So as I understand, the mechanism FDR used to do this was an executive order, right? Uh, no, no, no. It's, well, it's, it's a little complicated, but that's what I'm okay. gonna cover next. So how right, it was great. done. So it began with the Emergency Banking Act, which Congress approved on March 9th, 1933, um, after only the most trivial debate. We'll talk more about its passing in a moment. 
Uh, so what did the act do? First of all, and I think you'll find this little detail interesting, Aaron, that's why I left it in, it retroactively approved the president's closing of private banks throughout the country for several days the previous week, an act that he had not bothered to justify and for which he had possessed no constitutional or statutory authority. So he just acted. And then they kind of put a blessing over it a week later. Yeah, it's legitimate okay. now. Who cares? You know, in yeah, we we fix it now. It's it's legal yeah. at this point. Yes. Yeah, you can see why I wanted to share this with you. I mean, if yeah, this isn't absolutely. just such a perfect picture of how power really works, right? And and it's something we see over and over again, right? The the times yeah. that monet and I'm sure we're gonna we you've already started and we're gonna get deeper into it, but the times yeah. monetary policy always gets fuzzy tends to be around these imperial presidencies, right? Tends to be around these presidencies that already have kind of the intention to act. And then mm-hmm. kind of have the, uh, you know, like you said, the crisis, the the moment of exception, they're already going to do a lot of extra constitutional things. I mean, a lot of people would look at this and say, seizing gold. I mean, there's at least a few amendments that have to protect my right to my own property, right? How can an executive order or even an act of Congress possibly allow them to violate the Constitution in this way. But like you said, right. you know, a little bit of historical revisionism, a little bit of sweeping <laughs> under the rug, uh, the yep. explanation that, you know, it's a, it's a single moment and then you move beyond it. Somehow all of a sudden these actions become, oh, they were just necessary. If we hadn't done this, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are. So it's fine. It doesn't, doesn't matter right. if the Constitution was suspended. It, it's not a yeah. big issue. I mean, it's comical, Aaron, because, you know, one of the points I think you've been making is that you know, we don't really live under a rule of law and so forth. Um, and and what a, a fakey joke of a way to make it seem like, oh, no, no, we're, we're still, you know, constitutional. We're still under the rule of law because we retroactively <laughs> made it OK. Yeah. The thing he did last week, which was completely illegal. Right. Absolutely. I mean, what? It's, it's like a, it's clown world in 1933. It's, it's the War Powers Act for money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Exactly. Okay. So what else did this act do? It gave the secretary, this is the part key to our story. It gave the secretary of the treasury, the power to require all individuals and corporations to hand over all their gold coin, gold bullion, or gold certificates. If in his judgment, such action is necessary to protect the currency system of the United States. All right. Um, And it gets better in terms of uh, uh, the power of emergency. And also what it did is it built on a wartime measure from World War One? Now, bear in mind, World War One's been over for a while at this point. Yeah, just a little bit. Right? It's been over for what, 15 years or something like that. Um, and so the Emergency Banking Act amended the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917. Okay. The Trading with the Enemy Act, as you can imagine, was to criminalize economic intercourse between American citizens and declared enemies of the United States, right? A wartime measure. And probably most people are like, oh, okay, well, that's fair enough. We're at war with them. We shouldn't be like helping them with trading with them or whatever, right? But um, one provision of that act had granted the president the power to regulate and even prohibit uh, any transactions in foreign exchange, export or earmarkings of gold or silver coin or bullion or currency by any person within the US. So um, people thought that once the war had been over for two years, the Trading with the Enemy Act would no longer possess any force. The Supreme Court explained that no specific limitation restricted the act's provisions to World War I. So this thing that initially everybody would be like, well, it's an emergency act, quietly 
you know, in a, a Supreme Court thing that probably no one paid attention to, they quietly said, nah, it doesn't matter whether the emergency is still ongoing or not. The rule's still in place, right? Um, uh, one more thing, and then I, I want you to, I mean, you can see why I'm bringing this stuff up to you here. Yeah. So rather the, the, the trading, rather, the Supreme Court said, the trading with the Enemy Act stood ready to meet additional wars and additional enemies and could be called into service once again under the cir circumstances. The funny part being that no one would have expected that the additional enemies in the 1930s would be the American people themselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For, for people who are currently enjoying the uh, the acceleration of the Patriot Act onto the uh, American population, you can't help but draw those parallels, right? Like, just absolutely say you have this zombie piece of legislation that's or or a, even a Supreme Court uh, decision that is made in a particular time in a particular right. with a particular context, assuming that it's all going to be short term. That the the power granted will be very specific specific and circumspect. And it turns out actually it just becomes legal cover for the constant violation. We, we stay in the state yeah. of emergency in perpetuity. Right. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And, and I mean, I can just imagine like with the 9-11 Patriot Act, you know, I can just imagine some poor guy getting arrested and, and being charged with like terrorism. He's like, what? Terrorism? Well, it's this 9-11 provision, you know, this, this law that got passed right after 9-11, we're using it on you. 9-11? What? I, I didn't fly any buildings in the World Trade Center. What are you talking about? You know, uh, but but that is our legal reality. Yeah, fact. you can also be almost the uh, you know like old, old, old. This is kind of the version of like owning gold is a uh, you know you're siding with Putin here. You know, like it's the it's the, <laughs> kind of the update of that ridiculousness. Right. Okay, right. all right. So we we right. here. Uh, so gold is being outlawed again. That sounds kind of crazy to people that the that gold would be seized. Are, are you going to go into the process here then, like how that was implemented? Um, well, let, let me do a little more on. Yeah, sure, sure. let me tell you what, what's next. OK, so, okay. Um, so a month later. So all that was put into place, the Emergency right. Banking Act, the extension of the Trading with Enemy Act. And so a month later, claiming authority from the Emergency Banking Act and its amendment to the Trading with the Enemy Act, which extended it, its application. President Roosevelt ordered all individuals and corporations in, in America to hand over their gold holdings to the federal government in exchange for an equivalent amount of paper currency. Uh, the people were not yet told that the gold they were delivering to the government would never be returned to them. That would come later. They were not told that the paper currency they would receive in return would be diluted in value. That also would come later. Um, so it's a little hard to understand why Americans didn't put up more of a ruckus. I mean, well, number one is that as we know, 1929 did introduce a crisis, which you may not know, but Herbert Hoover made it worse by not taking the Warren Harding route, but the very opposite. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, people had a sense of a crisis and as usual, and this is why power likes using a crisis, right? In a mm -hmm. crisis, we all pull together. It's like animal instinct. You pull together, you, you gather the herd together, right? To face the, face the enemy or face the emergency, right? Um, and so the mindset was up until we, you have to get yourself back into a place that's really mentally unfamiliar. Up until this time, the American dollar could always be redeemed for gold, remember? Mm -hmm. So that's the mindset that people have. And they're thinking, oh, well, this is a little temporary emergency measure. And then we'll go back and these dollars that look just the same as they did yesterday, I'll be able to go to the bank and I'll exchange it for gold just like I would have a week ago, right? Right. It was hard to imagine that 
this was being used as an opportunity to just completely change everything. Yeah, it's it like, seemed it's, like a small step in a way, if you follow me, because people weren't walking around with gold coins. They were using the paper dollar that represented the gold and the gold was at the bank. Um, and so that's really the instrument through which they could put this into practice is that most of the gold was sitting in vaults at banks. And so yeah. the government just worked with the banks to grab the gold. Yeah, it makes more sense, like you said, now after kind of the post-pandemic and everything, how egregiously things have changed. But you, you look back to something like 9-11 and most people say, okay, a little bit, you know, additional security to make sure that, you know, there's not yep. a, a bomb on my plane or something. Yeah, sure, that's fine. And, you know, 20, 30 years later, they're still like walking through body scanners and, you know. Taking shoes off. I they, hate the taking shoes off part. Right, right. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this, so these things not only stayed with us, the things that look, seemed like a small change in the moment, but they actually accelerate over time. Yeah. The, the security right. is far more serious now than it was then. And now your point yeah. is now this would have been even less of a shock to them at this time, because like you said, the average person, they're not actually they like in theory, like the, the idea is my money is worth gold and I can go change it at any time. But the average person is not walking around with gold in their pocket. They're not regularly yeah. going to the bank to switch their gold for you know, their cash for gold, their gold for cash. And so the idea that, you know, okay, we're going to put this on hold for a year or two or something until things go back to normal, that wouldn't yeah. have been something that immediately affected your life because it's not like you were walking around with a bunch of gold bars in your pockets. Right. And, and there's just this, um, you know, and I, I think in some ways it speaks well of people. There's this um, assumption of uh, assuming the best, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, the people just figure, well, you know, okay, they'll, they'll do the right thing, you know. And also, it, it helps to emphasize that um, this is very unusual in the history of the world to, to have a paper money that is not backed by anything at all. It's uh, up until this time, it was unheard of, basically. Um, it had happened briefly in the French Revolution, I think. But as usual, it just became a hyperinflation and the paper money became worthless. Um, and then, uh, well, you know, some of these have become um, sayings or idioms, right? Uh, not worth a confederate. Um, or an assignat or whatever, right? These are these were monies that were not properly backed and they were just paper and they became worthless, right? Gotcha. So people had briefly tried these experiments, but no one saw that as like a good idea to do for long-term, mm -hmm. right? It, it always fell apart. And through most of history, people had, had um, precious metals. Okay, so <clears throat> then June 5th, 1933, at the behest of Roosevelt, uh, Congress passed a joint re resolution that made it illegal to require payment in gold or a particular kind of coin or currency. Um, that meant that any provision in a private contract or even in a public one, like when someone bought a government bond, promising payment in gold was nullified. So this, uh, we talked about President Roosevelt's unconstitutional action getting blessed retroactively. Well, these are contracts that already have been written and signed and agreed legally. And now those contracts are nullified retroactively. They actually go back in time and say, nope, that contract doesn't, uh, the provisions of that contract are no good, right? Wow. Um, so payment could be made in whatever the government had declared to be legal tender, right? So I got to give props to the blind Senator Thomas P. Gore. Uh, grandfather of uh, Gore Vidal, the great Gore Vidal, uh, Democrat of Oklahoma. 
he told the president to his face what he thought of this policy. He said, why, that's just plain stealing, isn't it, Mr. President? <laughs> uh, which it is. Yes, um, of course. So, in fact, let me make it, make it clear. Um, or, oh, I'm sorry, I'll give an example in a moment. So, so what happened to the price of uh, gold or effectively the dollar price? It was literally decided each day by FDR and the Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, in a completely random manner. I am not joking in what I'm about to tell you. One time FDR set the price of gold to $21 an ounce because 21 is a lucky number, you know, three times seven. I'm not kidding. So, <sighs> the so adults, These are the adults in the room, by the way. These are the serious people in our lives. So this sounds, you know, we've got this free market economy, right? Like this sounds an awful lot like the kind of cartoonish <laughs> stuff that you would hear out of a story from the USSR, right? Like, like right. all of a sudden, Soviet Central Planning Board, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. The, right, the right. president, you know, he has a lucky number today, and so that's <laughs> what the money is worth. Like, it sounds too absurd to possibly be true. How could America, this free market, free enterprise system, possibly function the same way? That doesn't make any sense. I know. Well, he, he, we'll talk about that in a minute, but but yeah. uh, let's just talk about the immediate effects, which is okay. it didn't function. It stopped functioning. Right, 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 um, right. So the consequences were not difficult to predict. Private lending came to a halt. Now, wh how, what other outcome would be possible? With the value of the dollar constantly changing, lenders had no way of knowing whether the dollars they would earn from repaid loans in the future would be worth less than the, the dollars they were lending in the present or how much less or whatever, right? Um, so Senator Carter Glass, Democrat of Virginia, put it, as he put it, no man outside of a lunatic asylum will loan his money today on a farm mortgage. Now, if you know anything about business and farming, you can imagine the disastrous effect here. Uh, a lot of people um, use loans to, you know, say, say a farmer buying some, um, uh, borrowing early in the season to pay back after they harvest, mm -hmm. right? This would be a very typical model and businesses operate in a similar way. Um, well, this all started falling apart, but this was not a problem, Aron, for FDR. In fact, one might say this is exactly what he wanted because he used the failure of the credit, mark, credit market as an excuse to provide relief. Oh, the market's not working. Guess we have to step in. You know, How unfortunate. Reluctantly. Yeah. We don't want to. We don't want right. to, but we got to help you. you know? <laughs> right? So anyway... Okay. Go ahead. Again, something we again something we see over and over throughout history: yeah. the yeah. generation of the problem, the need for the exception, and then the exercise of power that remains permanent once the theoretical crisis that was already brought into existence by the very leader who now attempts to solve it. Your your power is now permanent, and at the end of the whole right. thing. Yeah, and, and Ludwig von Ludwig von Mises put it in a wonderful way in the title of one of his uh, speeches or pamphlets: "It's uh, middle of the road policy leads to socialism." And this is what he's talking about. One exception leading to another, to another, to another. And it just the, leads you to the total state, right? Okay, so let me give you a concrete example of this, this uh, the problem with this um, uh, not allowing um, the contracts to, uh, nullifying the contracts. So um, there were a couple Supreme Court cases, of course, that happened really quickly with people challenging this. And one called, uh, the case is called Perry, involved a man who had purchased in gold a U.S. bond that was payable in gold, and he was seeking payment either in gold, or he was a reasonable man, or in the equivalent in paper currency. 
and the government didn't want to do that. <laughs> they didn't want to pay them back what they owed them, right? Yeah. So they intended to pay in depreciated dollars, which would not be the equivalent, right? And he would have received far less than he was entitled to under the terms of the bond. So the bond had a face value of $10,000 in gold, but with the inflated dollars of post-gold standard America, it would have taken about $17,000 in the, in the new paper currency uh, to satisfy what they had contracted to pay him. Get ready for this. The Supreme Court said the government has to live up to its promises. But then the Supreme Court followed with this twisted argument. Since gold was now illegal to hold, the plaintiff had not really been wronged after all. For even if the government did redeem his bond in gold, it would have to confiscate the gold from him. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. This Sorry, we can't, we, <laughs> we can't pay you back properly. If we did, we'd immediately have to take the money from you at force of arms. Like that's, right. that, that's an amazing piece. Yeah, no, that's wild. Yeah, so I had to share that. Just yeah. phenomenal. So, so um, uh, right. So, uh, the, uh, by the way, I have a great phrase, uh, credit to Merlin Mann for this. I, I call that playing lawyer ball. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, Great, great line here from one of my sources. I'll be sharing the sources in the live chat. Looting the public and then persuading them that their expropriation was really for their own good. That is indeed trick, even for government. <laughs> okay, so I want to go on to the next, the rest of the story, but any comments on the FDR part of this story before we move on to Nixon? Because this is, there's really two signal events that kind of bookend, or, well, you could say they're, this is, this is, severing from gold for most of us, but there's still a tide of gold that's left. And that's what Nixon severs. And that's what we'll finish up with. But any commentary on the remarkable tale I've told you here? Well, I just want to <laughs> clarify for people, because again, I think it's something that would just, I think most people wouldn't believe it if you just brought it up in casual conversation. So gold remains illegal, like, like not like you can own personal gold, you can own like jewelry. And I think it was something yeah. like you're allowed to own like a hundred dollars worth of gold you know but 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 in general through i think it was something like 1975 it's illegal to hold gold bullion like in mass it's yeah. considered hoardery right. like in the united states like i yep. just think the idea that 40 years that, yeah yeah you just would not have that property right at all would just blow people's mind and that that would hold up to repeated legal challenge again mm -hmm. in the face of you know, people are probably thinking, I've got a Fifth Amendment, right? Like how, how or, you know, how can the government be involved in completely banning the, you know, the ownership of like a basic substance that has been key to, you know, a large amounts of human, human civilization for many, many centuries? Like, how is that Amazing. possible that this was a regular thing that everyone just accepted and no one talks about in the United States for many decades? <laughs> I know. It's amazing. Now, what, what I'm not going to do, because we've already sort of learned, uh, in, as we've been learning about elite theory and so forth, right? We've already been learning that um, the Constitution is not quite what we were taught in school. Yeah. It's not quite the, 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 uh, the manacles on the, on the government that we were sold it as. Um, in fact, as we see with this story, it can just be completely ignored by an active executive, right? 
And not only can it be ignored, executives are celebrated for ignoring it, right? Like we we talk about rule of law. We talk about the need for constraints on government. We talk about separation of powers and and checks and balances and the the branches, you know, creating this system where the government is controlled and constrained on a regular basis. But the people we celebrate are the people who abuse the exception repeatedly. People like Lincoln, people like FDR. These are held up as giants, right? It is the imperial presidencies that we idolize and they they could become the heroes of history while doing everything that is supposed to be against what like your average GOP mainstream conservative thinks of as just kind of the basis of American government, the, the basic principles that allow for limited government are the very things that need to be regularly violated by people who want to make their mark on the United States, it seems. It does seem like a mixed message. On the one yeah. hand, we really believe in the rule of law. On the other hand, if you break the rule of law, we'll make a giant face of you on Mount Rushmore. And and a lot of times we'll go back and, like you said, retroactively legalize the things you've done. Right. Like we'll we'll go back and and, uh, you know, pass a few things and uh, change some history. Sprinkle some holy water on it. Exactly. And then it'll be fine. Like none of it will be a big problem. So who needs habeas corpus? Right. Like who who needs to who needs to be able to own goal, own property? Like you don't have rights to that stuff unless, you know, you, you might have those rights unless we feel like at the moment there's a there's a crisis. And then we can suspend those rights for many, many decades without any serious problem, even any serious issue with continuing to exercise that power right yeah it's it's crazy oh what i was going to say about the constitution is i i could have gone into detail about how extraordinarily unconstitutional this was mm-hmm. i mean it's not like the constitution is silent on the matter of uh gold is money it's ex- mm-hmm. actually extremely clear um but again all this just gets interpreted away right. right because that's one of the things we learn is you can put words on paper but who interprets the words yes right it's it's so. it's it, someone's <laughs> always deciding it matters who yeah. decides yeah exactly. so right we so gold is banned um yeah the next big event we were going to talk about is the actions of richard nixon i believe so right go ahead i'm and... gonna have to lay a little groundwork there so sure. the Bretton Bretton woods agreement probably yes. most people have heard those words i'm gonna give you a real capsule thing here so Bretton woods conferences in 1944 the war is not going to be over for another year but at this point it's clear that the allies are going to win basically, mm-hmm. uh, after some grinding, right? So they go ahead and they meet to talk about what, what should the international order be in various regards, including economically, um, to our point here. So Rothbard writes, the new system was essentially the, the, the system established in, at Bretton Woods, essentially the gold exchange standard of the 1920s, but with the dollar rudely displacing the British pound as one of the key currencies. Um, in fact, now the dollar valued at one thirty-fifth of a gold ounce, so thirty-five dollars for an ounce of gold, right, was to be the only key currency, right? So dollar dominance, which we have to this day, um, or the petrodollar as it's now called. The other difference from the twenties was that the dollar was no longer redeemable in gold to American citizens, so this became official, mm-hmm. right? You're never getting your gold back. <laughs> um, instead, the 1930s system was continued with the dollar redeemable in gold to foreign governments and their central banks. And that's the key point, because there was still a constraint on the United States government uh, because of foreign governments and other central banks. 
Now, uh, I think I think this might be obvious to some people, but just for clarification, why would the U.S. government restrict that action to their citizens, but not to foreign governments? What's their incentive to leave the gold window open for outside governments, outside banks? Well, they just hadn't gotten to that yet, basically. Okay. <laughs> they just hadn't, you know, gotten up to that power level or whatever. Uh, that's the but, part I wanted to get to is they, they didn't yeah, have the, get the influence able to... Yeah. to yeah, to do that leverage. Okay, so go ahead. Right. right. So, so therefore, no private individuals, only governments, were to be allowed the privilege of redeeming dollars in the world gold currency. Um, so, in the Bretton Woods system, the U.S. pyramided dollars in paper money and in bank deposits on top of gold, in which dollars could be redeemed by foreign governments, while all other governments held dollars as their basic reserve and pyramided their currency on top of dollars. So, it's a dollar standard, a global U.S. dollar standard with the US holding gold that backs it. Mm -hmm. Got it? Okay. So um, I'm not gonna criticize the Bretton Woods Agreement. You get the idea. Okay, so <laughs> what what is the result of this? Um, at the time, as World War II comes to an end, they set the currency exchange values at pre-war levels. This resulted in the dollar being undervalued and European currencies being overvalued. And that increased the demand for dollars. Well, that worked out great for the United States because um, they could inflate the dollar mm -hmm. and people still wanted them because they were relative to European currency. They were still valuable, right, uh, in this whole scheme. Um, but they kept doing that for a while. <laughs> um, uh, so Americans were still not allowed to redeem dollars in gold. They were not. A, so they were not a check on this inflation. Americans couldn't make a run on gold. Right. right? And say, hey, give me my gold back because that just was illegal. You're right. Um, but other countries could, and they did. One in particular, uh, try to guess in your mind here, European governments, and especially the French government led by Charles de Gaulle. Um, he was advised by the classical gold standard economist Jacques Rouff. Uh, by the 1960s, they began to purchase U.S. gold in earnest. So they're like, we are going to take advantage of these this redemption right, and we're mm -hmm. going to get us some gold over in France, right? Um, so in, in the early post-war years, it made sense to hold officially undervalued dollars, but in less than two decades, the dollar had become hopelessly overvalued relative to most European currencies. And so they're all wanting to pull our gold out of the U.S., right? Right. Um, there was the Vietnam War. There was LBJ's great society welfare programs to fund, and the U.S. government was funding them to a great degree through inflation. So it was reaching a crisis point by the late 60s. In 1968, they tried a stopgap measure to stop the gold hemorrhage. As usual, they didn't know what they were doing. It resulted in, in increasing the runs on U.S. gold. It actually made the problem worse. And so by the summer of 1971, the U.S. economy was stagnant. Prices were rising. And President Nixon, on August 15th, 1971, announced his phase one economic plan of price controls just in case you never remember that Nixon did price controls, he yeah. did uh, price controls and temporarily closing the gold window. What does that mean? That means that foreign governments, foreign central banks could no longer redeem U.S. dollars into gold, just like had been done to private American citizens in 1933. Now we were doing it to everybody. I shouldn't say right. we, the government was. Um, so what happened? Both inflation and price controls continued even after Nixon the 1970s were marked by stag stagflation, rising unemployment, and rising consumer prices, rising price inflation at the same time. 
Um, one little detail here that's interesting. The economists who had advocated for the dollar being fully severed from gold thought that gold was being propped up by its tie to the dollar. And so they thought it would drop from that fixed $35 per ounce price to around $10 per price per ounce. They figured reflecting the industrial use of gold, right? Yeah. Instead, by early 73, it had climbed to $125 an ounce. And as you may know, it's, oh, I just checked, it's over $1,600 an ounce right now. Right. Um, but the point is gold was demonetized still, right? It still couldn't be used as a money. It, it wasn't money anymore. Um, so all money now is fiat paper money that has no backing in a valuable commodity. Gold exists. It does not serve as money. And that means I cannot walk into a store and purchase with a gold coin. They'd look at me funny, right? Or a certificate representing gold. It just wouldn't work as, as gold, right? So then the final part of the story is about 1975, the federal government once again permitted Americans to hold gold, even in the form of commemorative coins. I have some. Um, but just to make sure these coins could never circulate and displace the constantly depreciating paper, paper currency printed by the U.S. government, the law required that such coins could circulate only at a value of $50 an ounce. Since gold sells for about $1,800 an ounce right now, no one in his right mind is going to use gold as money. Right. So you make, so you functionally made it illegal to use gold yeah. as money, even though you're allowed to possess it. We, we may now possess it again. Thank you very much, government. Yeah. But, but, land of but the free. Yes. Land yes. of the free. But it's, it's never going to be money again. And that's why, in a way, you could think of them re-legalizing as, as almost kind of a joke, right? It, it's it's a, almost a slap in the face. It's like, here, you can have this little toy back, but you can't have it as money anymore. You can't have now, it be its historic use anymore, right? Now that we've completely abstracted the concept of money away from this gold, you you now you can have it back because it no yeah. longer can serve the function. You you can't yeah. you can't even conceptualize it as money anymore because right. we've separated you from it for so long. Right. And so right. now it's fine to hand it back to you because it can no longer function that way for you. Right. It no longer serves as a constraint on the government, on government right. spending. Right. So um, one oh, so sorry, yeah. Go no, go ahead. So the the kind of the you know the postscript on this that I wanted to get into just a little bit and guys if you have any questions for myself or Radlib let me know you can go ahead and drop those uh, with the chat real quick but uh, the the last part of this that I wanted to kind of touch on is we it feels like we are now going through another phase of this process right we are now this push to a cashless society I was just over uh, you know I'm, I'm normally in not rural, but, but, but certainly not big cities in the United States. And you're only seeing this in a few places, but in big cities like London, um, you're seeing this, like no one will accept cash. No one will take physical currency at all. Everything has to be electronic. So it's not a one-to-one -to, -one to the gold situation, but it feels like we're undergoing another shift. Again, we see the, the crisis, right? COVID. Oh, we can't touch money. We can't have this physical exchange of currency because it might spread the germs and, and that kind of thing. So we have to go to electronic payment payments only in order to, you know, just, just during this time, just during this pandemic for the moment, just to be reasonable. And then, you know, everything will go back, except now everyone's gotten used to it. Everyone's converted over to the electronic payments because they had to. There wasn't an option to do anything else for a certain amount of time. And now many of these businesses, uh, especially in urban areas, 
are making this the only option. They're doing that voluntarily, even without any particular government, you know, hounding them to do so. Um, yeah. So the war on cash is what it's called. We yeah. talked about the war on gold. Well, um, you'd think that now that we're all using this paper money that isn't tied to gold, that would be good enough, right? Yeah. But it's still not good enough <laughs> because with cash, I can make a transaction uh, with Aron where he gives me something from his farm or something and I give him some cash and it's off the books and no one knows that we've made this exchange. It's not recorded anywhere and therefore it can't be taxed. We can't figure out that I am helping fund Oran's, you know, horrible anti-regime lifestyle, right? <laughs> Etc. Right. Um, so, so they want to eliminate cash itself, uh, which seems like insane. Like, how much more control do they need? Well, evidently more. All of it. Yes. <laughs> total, of it. total. Total control. Yeah. Total well, control. I yeah. mean, we look we look at what happened with the Canadian truckers, right? Like, we have this scenario where the truckers were being funded. Uh, to continue their protest. And because truckers are kind of that, uh, that medium between the land and the urban areas, they have, they're the few, one of the few working class people that can have a direct and immediate impact on kind of the flow of things. They can uh, severely impact the, the supply chain, which means they have to be heard very quickly. What does the government do to end this protest? Do they send in guys with truncheons? Do they, do they go in and you know uh, spray a bunch of uh, tear gas at these guys, this kind of thing? No, they cut off electronic payments, right? They seize bank accounts. They shut down right. the ability to draw that money. And like you said, that keeps those people from doing things that the government doesn't want to do, even though there's nothing illegal about what they're doing, even though the things they have should be protected under Canadian uh, law, even though their protest is completely peaceful, it doesn't matter. If the government doesn't like it, they can immediately use that ability to shut it down and then they'll go back and justify it later, right? I think, I think um, Trudeau did have a fig leaf of cover from uh, uh, from the Canadian legislature, but in general, it allows them to take those uh, actions immediately. And then, if they need to go back and figure it out, it doesn't matter. The system has already been uh, used in that way to quell the immediate problem. They can always kind of go back and explain why or legalize it as as necessary. Yeah, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I don't know if you've seen me comment on it, but it's the this issue of time, right? It's mm -hmm. like. Um, if they're able to act in the way they want to act and we're not able to stop them, then it kind of doesn't matter what happens later. You know, whether their actions get justified, whether a court somewhere says that we had the right to do what to resist or something like that. Um, even some of the things that, you know, we weren't supposed to say during the COVID stuff. Now you can say it. And now some of these things are being said, you know, mm -hmm. some of these questions are being raised. Right. Um, but it doesn't matter. They, whatever they wanted back then during the, the crisis, they got it. Exactly. And so so I, I think that's a mistake I see people say, making sometimes like, well, I'm free to say this now. And so I'm free in some sense. Well, no, you're free to say it only when it doesn't matter anymore. Yes. Right. Yeah, this is a constant dynamic. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, once the crisis is over, once the moment of exception has passed, in, in fact, not only do you not only are you allowed to say it in some sense, they want you to discuss it because the dialectic advances in this direction. Right. By mm -hmm. by allowing 
the opposition to speak and and kind of uh, speak against things, you allow first the illusion of meaningful uh, opposition, right? Yeah. Like, uh, oh no, we are free. You know, we like you're saying, we can we can still talk about this. We so there is still meaningful yeah, yeah. resistance. We should still act within the system because there's still a, a, a chance of us advancing our interests. But it also allows uh, the dialectic of uh, people can come back and. Uh, they can play the heroes for some of this stuff. We saw this with the pandemic. Again, a bunch of the uh, press who pushed relentlessly on uh, the closure of schools and the shutdown of society are now writing stories about these poor underserved minorities <laughs> who are victims of the very thing that they pushed for. But at the time, they were pushing for it, and now they get to go back and play the hero of these people who, who are the favored <laughs> groups, the client classes of the elite. Right. And so they get to speak kind of on the behalf. Same thing with the war, right? Like with, with, with the war on terror. All of these uh, New York Times and all these people, they're in Hillary Clinton. They're in support of the war on terror in the moment when it provides the power. But then they get to go back later on and pretend like they really hate George Bush. He's a war criminal, blah, 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 even though they were backing their policies the entire time. But they get to play both sides. And I think, you know, you'll see this again with the monetary. I think this happens with monetary policy as much as it happens with anything else. Right. That they'll they'll be talk about all these issues They're You're allowed to go back and and say, you know, push back and say, oh, how could you do this? You know, after the moment has passed, but they got what they wanted in the meantime. And that power will still remain available, as we saw with like that Supreme Court decision. That power is still out there for them to use it again. If you think they yeah. won't advance themselves along monetary policy or or uh, COVID policy or war on terror policy, just later on, just because they let a few people push back, you've lost your mind. They do it over and over again. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of... Uh how sometimes they get a twofer, right? Like with the war on terror, <clears throat> they got to push the war on terror and, and put, put, put the ball forward on a number of areas of, of tyranny, I would call it, or, you know, and grow the total state towards more totality. Um, and then later they got to uh, condemn the deplorables for their anti-Islamic bigotry. You know? Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just, yeah. They kind of get, they get it. We get it coming and going, you know? <laughs> that, yes, exactly. That's, that's a perfect example. That's a good one. I'll, right. I haven't, I haven't thought about that one, but that's one I'll use as well. Yeah. You, you get to say, you get to say, you know, the whole time we have to do this, we have to take this action. We have to do this for security. And then the exact same people get to come behind later and say, Oh, now that basically all these conservatives have picked up on all our social signaling and bought into our narrative, we're going to, we're going to slam them for buying it. Yes. Actually, these are the hateful people. They're the right. ones that, drove it don't even pay attention to us forget all of the articles we wrote forget all the actions we took it, it was the whole time it was these evil red staters that were pushing this yeah. agenda the, yeah no that's a this is why problem. we can't be free and have nice things because look yeah. at you bigots there you know that's right it's, it's, yeah, exactly. you know, we'd love for you to be free but eh, you know um okay so let, let me wrap up a little bit on the gold issue real quick sure sure um, sure Didn't realize um, but I, I i feel like we're on the same page there's so many yeah. lessons to learn from this in terms of how power functions, but also keeping it more strictly to to money, the story isn't over because the war on cash is ongoing. Right. Um, you've noticed that they're trying to move towards digital currency. You might have heard of central uh, bank digital currency, CBDCs. Um, and uh, before that, there was um, uh, if you try to pull if you pull out more than ten thousand dollars, then you have to like fill out a form because of anti money laundering laws. You know, there's been all kinds of moves being made to, to box you in until 
ultimately, right, they can just track everything we do. Yeah. Uh, that's really the, the end game there. Okay, so what were the consequences of that original 1933 to 1971 uh, series of events? Well, just to say that the United States government had a completely free hand to inflate is to understate, understate it. So I, I want to recommend to you a website that some friends of my, mine have done. I'm putting in there, I'll also say it. It's WTF happened in 1971, and it's so great. You'll see all these charts, and they point to 1971 on each chart. And over and over again, you'll see a certain trend, and the 1971 hits, and the trend like spikes up or spikes down, depending on what it is, usually in a bad direction. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, divorces, I mean, all kinds of trends just go, go crazy in 1971. Uh, so that, you know, to some degree, that what they're arguing is you might say, well, it's just money, but it has an influence on culture is one of the things we learn. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you've ever heard of Weimar Germany and the, the hyperinflation in Germany and the destruction of the middle class, right? It, it had profound cultural impacts, what was happening with just money, um, because this affects how we plan our lives, how we save, what we consider to be prudent behavior and imprudent behavior. All of these things are affected by bad money versus good money. And I'm really glad that you touched on that, the, the moral aspect of yeah. money, because like you said, a lot of people, I saw someone in chat saying, well, who cares? I just, I want prices to go down. I want all this stuff, you know, <laughs> to happen. But, but your point is really important. You know, money, a uh, sound monetary policy allows for the lowering of time preference, right? It allows right. people to put things off into the future. And these are the things that allow you to build civilization, build families, yes. save for the future, create a middle class, create a self-sustaining class, which is, of course, why they have to be obliterated, right? If they're not, <laughs> if they're, if you're not pegged, to every whim of the state. If you're not sitting around yeah. to figure out if Franklin Roosevelt is going to pull his lucky number to decide how much something is going to be <laughs> worth that day, then you're not a, a subject of the total state. And so it's really right. essential to obliterate the ability of people to, to plan for the future if you want them to be under the complete control of the state. And so the destruction of sound monetary policy has a very serious moral dimension. It's not just yeah. like whether or not, you know, a, a, a Vanderbilt can buy a house somewhere. Yeah. It has way, way bigger implications. Absolutely. Um, another way to put it is that um, the sound money allowed for rival sources of authority and power to be built up that were not the state. Yeah. Right. And so I like to point to the Middle Ages where you have a lot of rival risk power, you know, not only the church, but all kinds of little principalities, um, guilds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things were real functioning little sovereignties, you might say, uh, kind of contending with each other, kind of rubbing up against each other. Um, we're, we're moving away from that sort of decentralized, scattered view of authority to one central eye of Sauron, right? Yeah. <laughs> Seeing everything we do. Um, okay, and then I, this is not a pitch for gold, by the way, um, in, this, in this thing. I, I, I explained how gold functioned. I explained why... The state, how the state got rid of it, why they got rid of it. But let me just say something here, which is that compared to an irredeemable paper currency, what we have now, gold severely restricts the ability of governments to manipulate the money supply on behalf of, who, who benefits from this, the politically well-connected. Mm -hmm. They receive the newly created paper money first before prices have risen, right? 
at the expense of the rest of the population, us, who receive it only later, while meanwhile having to pay the higher prices that, that the new money brought, right? So it gives the money, it, the paper money gives the government an easier time of financing war and welfare, which can be portrayed as essentially costless. It isn't mm -hmm. costless, but because we don't see it in our tax bill uh, directly, it, it's sort of hidden, right? It, it pays for all these things by silently looting its subject population in the form of diluting the value of everyone's dollar. So, so you know, I, some people view like an Austrian economist such as myself as having like a fetish for gold. I really don't care. If we can do it with Bitcoin or something else, that would, great, rock and roll, man. Let's do it in the new techno way. I don't care. But we need something that they can't just inflate on a whim. Yeah. That, that's what we need our money to be ultimately. That's what we need to get back to somehow. Whether that's gold or Bitcoin or you come up with your own way to do it. I don't know. It just needs to not be what we've got now. Yeah, you're you're just using it because it's the the best example of a sound monetary policy that you have at hand. It's not saying it's the only Historical. one that could exist. Yeah, but no, it, no. It, yeah, yeah. yeah we know, like I like I gave examples of ramen and cigarettes and so forth. You know, many things have been money, and we don't know if if this system collapses. And by the way, historically, all fiat money systems have collapsed. This is might be the longest running one in the history of the world, um, but but they don't tend to have a very long life cycle, uh, and I would say that seventy one really started the clock ticking, in particular, right? Because it was still tied to gold up until seventy one, um, because of, because of the uh, foreign governments being able to exchange it. So the clock started ticking in nineteen seventy one. We've made it fifty years. We probably have set a world record, but I would not put my money <laughs> on on the fiat money system lasting for even the rest of my lifetime personally yeah, you're, I, I would you're, ra you're rapidly decreasing in value dollars you would not place on yeah. on this yeah <laughs> absolutely right. all right guys well we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up but uh go ahead and let everybody know where they can find your stuff and is there anything exciting people should know anything you want to kind of let people know about before we get going yeah. So two things. First of all, my personal channel um, that I run is called Radical Liberation. That's why I always have the name there. People call me Rad Lib sometimes, or you can use my regular name. That's fine, too. And uh, there's a couple things that happen on my channel. One is that I alternate on my Thursday show between um, an economic show where my good friend Black Horse from Canada helps uh, look at current financial situation. Um, we've been, you know, very concerned, for example, about how Europe's doing with high, very high energy prices and how is winter going for them and things like that, you know. Um, and then, but I alternated with some of that uh, uh, forgotten things theme that we've been mm -hmm. doing this whole stream. So most recently, we've been doing a series on left-wing terror um, and talking about the uh, Bolshevik terror the French revolutionary terror right now we're in the middle of talking about the 1970s in the United States, uh, a time of terror that again, like the, the seizure of gold has been flushed down the memory hole. So let me give you a quick example. In 1972, 1,900 domestic bombings happened in the United States. I'm not making that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we we're telling that story right now. I actually paused for the holidays because I'm reading the material for this 
and I was just getting sick to my stomach. It's really terrible. So I decided it wasn't in the Christmas season. So in January, we'll resume the left-wing terror series that we've been doing for a while. Um, also, my wife and I do a show about once a month called Mrs. Radlib, which is entirely different, where we talk about homeschooling and sex and uh, boundaries and all kinds of sort of personal, more personal living kind of stuff, I guess. Um, but it's, it's very popular for an overlapping but slightly different set of people. And then the last thing is I would mention the Old Glory Club. I've been honored to be the president of the Old Glory Club. It's a new venture we just started a couple months ago featuring a number of American friends uh, that met at a conference. Um, sorry, turn that off. And um, uh, <clears throat> you can find us at um, Old Glory Club on YouTube and on Substack and uh, Radical Liberation. You just look up Radical Liberation on YouTube and you'll find me. Excellent, oh, guys. I'm just stick oh, sources sorry. in here while I can. Go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah, make sure that you check out everything that's coming out of Radical Liberation uh, and the Old Glory Club. Those are both uh, excellent. There's, a, like I said, the Substack and the, the YouTube channel where they do streams. I've been on one of those. So make sure that you check that out. And of course, if this is your first time at the channel, make sure that you subscribe. And if you want to go ahead and listen to this as a podcast because you want to do it while you're working out or playing video games or fixing something around the house, you can check out uh, all of the major podcast platforms. Oren McIntyre's show is on all of them now. And if you do subscribe, if you go ahead and make sure to live uh, to leave a review and a rating, that really helps out a lot, keeps the, the podcast climbing the charts and everything. Also, I just did a, uh, let's see, let's I did a article with uh, The Blaze yesterday on uh, Elon Musk and uh, kind of the use of power and conservatives not understanding how that works, why it creates a ratchet. So you can check that out. Uh, and I also just did an appearance on Jesse Kelly's show, but I believe that's for a special. So it should be coming up soon. Keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, but thanks for coming, guys. And thank you again, uh, Steve, for coming on. Always appreciate our talks. Uh, everybody have a great one. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.